All right. If you have your Bibles, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your Bibles, and I want you to turn to Psalm 119. We're going to look at just the first section of Psalm 119, so I want you to find it. I want you to find your Bibles, uh, within your Bible, Psalm 119, and then here's what I want you to do. All right? Everybody found it? Okay, now I want you to close your Bibles. I want you to close your Bibles, all right? I want you to close your Bibles. And here's what I, here's what I mean. I, I'm going to read for you a quote about the Word of God uh, from a guy named James Smith. Now, James Smith wrote this quote in 1849, so it's a pretty old quote. James Smith is probably not as well-known as, as some other you know, well-known pastors, but he was the predecessor of um, Charles Spurgeon at his church. So Spurgeon would know James Smith, and so James Smith in 1849, uh, I think Spurgeon took over that church in 1851, but here's what he says about the Word of God. The Word of God um, is this, is um, the Bible is God's book, written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and therefore free from error. It contains God's law, the church's history, and Christ's gospel. It reveals God, opens heaven, and directs man. It makes known God's thoughts, the world's doom, and the church's blessedness. It unfolds eternity to time, brings heaven to earth, and makes invisible realities known. It was written for sinners, has been preserved by a special providence, and is the godly man's treasure. Infidels scorn it. Angels study it with wonder, and the saints delight in it. Its revelations were delivered first orally, then written, then printed. First given to a few, then written for many, then printed for all. First freely bestowed, then hard to be obtained, and now easily to be gotten. Given by God, opposed by the devil, blasphemed by many, rejected by more, unknown to thousands, but highly prized by a few. It is suited to youth, adapted to manhood, but peculiarly peculiarly applicable to old age. It is the child's lesson book, the learner's class book, and the scholar's textbook. Many study it, all Christians believe it, but none fully comprehend it. And here's what he said, I love this. It enlightens the dark, it instructs the ignorant, it comforts the desponding, it directs the lost, it encourages the seeking, it assures the waiting soul, it warns the wayward, it threatens the unruly, it condemns the impenitent, it invites the weary, it strengthens the weak, consoles the dejected, alarms the careless, accuses the indifferent, confounds the worldly wise, cautions the venturesome, reproves the heedless, gives promise to the diligent, frowns on the thoughtless, curses the profane, damns the hypocrite, urges the halting, exhorts the obedient, rewards the persevering, exalts the savior, glorifies God, astonishes angels, confounds infidels, delights perishing sinners. That is what you have in your hand. Are you weak? Are you weary? Are you overwhelmed? Then the Lord God has given his word to you this day. And what you hold in your hand, and it better be closed. Some of you you are like, I really want to open it now just because he told me to close it, right? I mean, never before have you wanted to open your Bible so much except for the very fact that I told you to keep it closed. 
It is for you. It is God's love letter to you. And by it, we know who God is and how he has called us to live. If, if we use the Bible, um, and, and, and I, I, I even caution our ability to say we use the Bible, but rather when we submit ourselves to the word of God, it begins to do a work in us. So, open your Bibles to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, we're just going to read the first eight verses, not all 176 verses. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. We all say the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. All right. So we come to Psalm 119, and I will tell you this in terms of Psalm 119. Matthew Henry, the great theologian who wrote Matthew Henry's commentaries, he said that every day in the life of his family, his dad would recite and make his children meditate on one verse of Psalm 119 every day. And if you take 176 uh, and you multiply it by two, there's 362, or is that right? Oh, you guys figure that out. 172, yeah, oh, whatever. All right, you guys do the math. Public math is bad, right? I'm actually pretty good at math, but not public math. He said, essentially, you can get through that twice, and you have a couple days off, all right? He, he would say that Psalm 119 is this golden treasure trove, and what it says over and over again is talking about the Word of God. As a matter of fact, it speaks about the Word of God, and he uses these terms. If you look at Psalm 119, verses 1 through 8, here's what you see. In verse 1, the law of the Lord. In verse 2, testimonies. In verse 3, his ways. In verse 4, precepts. In verse 5, statutes. In verse 6, commandments. Verse 7, rules. In verse 8, he repeat statutes again. And essentially what he's saying there is that the word of God is so multifaceted in the life of the believer and given to us by a God who loves us that we need to study it and we need to come at it from different perspectives because it will do different things. When we think about the idea of God's rules, right, or the law of the Lord, it is you know, what we are to, to believe. The law of the Lord is, is all that he has given us. And we think about his testimonies, you know, his testimonies are what God has done for his people. So when God, you know, extricated and rescued the, the people of God from Israel or from Egypt and led them to Israel, he was saving them, right? He was redeeming the people. That's a testimony of God. When Jesus takes away uh, leprosy and makes the, the, the lame dance for joy, or when he dies on the cross for all of us, that is a testimony. So when we think about the testimonies of God, you're there, you're blessed are those who keep his testimonies, meaning that we keep them in our heart and we seek them with all of our heart. You know, his ways, you know, what does it mean, the ways, uh, W-A-Y-S, not W-A-Z-E, like we're on a traffic, you know, like we're traveling or anything. It says how God wants the journey of our lives to be lived out. Like, how does God want us to walk? How does he want us to, to carry ourselves forward? 
the ways, or the word precepts, and that, that's, that's an interesting word. We don't talk about the word precepts very much, but it's God's order, the way he has made life to work. So God in his precepts, has, it's the order that God has placed us in. Statutes, you know, statutes, we hear about statutes, they're the law or ordinance that will bring blessing if it's followed. You know, um, again, commandments, you know, God's action and, and what we are called and what he wants us to do. You know, all of these different things. All of these different ways, and, and essentially for um, 176 verses. Now, I want you to know that Psalm 119, and you've heard this before, it's an acrostic. So it takes the Hebrew alphabet. So if you're reading in your Bibles, you'll see right before verse 1 of Psalm 119, Aleph. And Aleph is the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And so there's 22 sections of eight verses. And so each verse or each section, one through eight, is Aleph. Uh, you know, and then I guess it's nine through 16 is Bet. And so it just kind of goes Aleph, Bet, Gimel, hey. Uh, Vav and Zion, Het and Tet, and so forth, right? That's just the song I learned the Hebrew alphabet to, okay, in seminary. You know, that's because I need mnemonics like that, right? So as we think about Psalm 119, here's, what, here's the big idea. It's saying the word of God. The word of God is meant for your blessing, and it should be loved. And he says it to us 176 times. Now, I had a seminary professor, and here's what he would do. He, and some of you probably have teachers who have done this as well, is what would happen is in the midst of teaching, they would do this. And he would call, that's a foot stomp. And what my professor meant was, that will be on the test. And so as we're listening, I mean, again, you know, like we're, you know, maybe zoned out a little bit and all of a sudden we would hear, we're like, what'd he say? What'd he say? You know, like, I, I gotta figure that out because that'll be on the test, right? So what the Lord God of heaven says 176 times in Psalm 119, he says the word of God is to be treasured. It is meant to be you know, lifted up. It is meant to be consumed. Uh, the prophet Jeremiah, uh, actually in the midst of the book of Lamentations, or you know, the, the weeping prophet, but Jeremiah writes Jeremiah and Lamentations. In verse 16, or, uh, verse 16 of chapter 15, uh, the prophet Jeremiah says, your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I called by, for I am called by your name. Now that is in the midst of the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. And Jeremiah said, in the midst of the worst part of my life, I found your word and I ate them. Now I don't think he, maybe he ate them, you know, but, but I think what he's saying is I have consumed your word. I have hidden it in my heart. I am finding great strength and comfort from your word. Now again, when, when the Lord God of heaven reveals to man 176 times how important the Bible is to us, we should think that it is important as well. Now, I want you to also think about this. Um, it is actually longer. Uh, these 176 verses are actually longer than 31 other books of the Bible. 31 other books of the Bible have less verses than Psalm 119. And so what God is saying is, love your Bible, for I've given it to you so that you might know how to walk with me. Funny story about Psalm 119, and it is long, that's why we're only doing the first section here. Um, there, was a, there was a bishop of Edinburgh in the 17th century, and his name was George Wishart. And George Wishart was uh, sentenced to death uh, as a bishop 
And he was on the scaffold. And one of the things that uh, you were afforded back then was when you were sentenced to death and condemned to death at the scaffolds, they would allow you uh, to sing one psalm. And so he decided to sing Psalm 119. Two-thirds of the way through the psalm, a pardon arrived from the king that actually allowed him to be exonerated and, and no longer face death through that. And so isn't it good that he didn't pick another psalm? Now, he knew that he was hopeful that a pardon was coming, and so the best stall tactic that he could do was say, I better sing Psalm 119, and I might as well do it over, I mean, I'll do it as long as they want me to, but eventually the pardon came. I want you to see this. There's a few things that that we see in Psalm 119, verse one. Verse one and two say this, and it says, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. Now, what does that term blessed mean? Well, that term blessed means joyful, or sometimes we might even say happy. There is this sense in which when we take the word of God, the law of the Lord, and the testimonies of God, and we walk in them, we seek them with our whole heart, there is something that causes joy to well up in our souls when we are doing the right thing. This harkens back to Psalm 1, where it says, you know, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But what is it? His delight is in the law of the Lord. So that when we open the word of God, knowing that it is a a love letter from our, our king, a love letter from our father, instructions as to how we are to live, we open it up and we delight ourselves in this book. There's this happiness and this joy that occurs for us. I think the struggle, though, for us in the midst of all of these things is that we just don't believe it at times. We believe that other things are going to you know, satisfy our soul. We believe that we know better than the Word of God, that, that culture informs us in a more realistic way, but that we struggle. And, and, and in a similar way, I think about the story of, um, in the book of Joshua about Jericho and the, you know, you guys know the story. You know, Joshua commanded now Jericho, this, this great city that the, the people of, of, um, of Israel were coming against. And now Joshua, uh, says this in, in Joshua chapter, um, six, it says now Jericho was shut up on inside and outside because the people of Israel, none went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand. And with its king and mighty men of valor, you shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do, you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horn before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, and everyone straight before him. Now, I want you to think about that. This is the worst battle plan ever. So you want all of the army of God to essentially become a marching band that wanders around one time, and we're going to do that. Now, I think the people of God and the the army of God was thinking, you know, we thought Moses was crazy. Joshua is, is, there's no way this is going to work, right? 
Like, this is our battle plan, is to destroy this thick-walled city of Jericho with, with bad music? Like, that's what we're going to do? And yet, the testimony of God is this. You know, in verse 12, then Joshua rose early in the morning and the priests took up the ark of the Lord and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horn before the ark of the Lord walked on and they blew the trumpets continually and the armed men were walking before them and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. And on the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priest had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the walls came down. And everybody looks and goes, wow, he was telling the truth. There are moments like that in, in our own life when, when we are pouring over the word of God and, and, and as we relate the word of God to our life, we go, Wow, that's true. <laughs> like there are times when, when we go to the book of Proverbs and you know, my, one of my favorite Proverbs is Proverbs 15.1, a, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. And I look at that and I go, that's true. I'm like, I should probably read some more of the Bible. I should probably be memorizing these things and hiding them in my heart so that I will know, again, the testimonies of God, the salvation of God, the forgiveness of God, the love of God. Now, we not only see in the first two verses, you know, blessed, happy, joyful, but we also see in verses three and four, there's this idea that we are set apart and, and we are set apart to be holy as the people of God. In verse three, it says this, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. And again, precepts are God's order, the way he has made life to work. So that we are called to, to, be, um, to keep them diligently. And that we are called to, to do no wrong and to walk in his ways. And if we do those things, if we you know, order our lives in such a way that, that we, we love what God loves and we hate what God hates, then there is this promise of blessedness or happiness or joy that will be for the people of God. D.L. Moody um, said uh, at one point, he says, I have known no one who was used mightily who is not a student of the word of God. The word of God sets us apart, makes us holy, so that then we might actually be able to do works for the glory of God, for the advancement of the kingdom of God, and they are good things. You know, the, the word of God, um, again, as we are called to, to pursue this, the, when we think about uh, these things, we think about what does the New Testament say about the word of God? It's interesting. You know, we, we read in Hebrews chapter four that, you know, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You're like, at this point, you might be holding your Bible going, I don't know if I want to submit myself to that. The word of God is... In Acts chapter six, it says, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. 
In Acts 12, it says, but the word of God increased and multiplied. It's interesting that it says not the church increased and multiplied, but that the word of God increased and multiplied. Yeah, so that when we come to church, we should be ready to hear the word of God explained, that we should be reading the word over and over again. And that we should be ready, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make you uncomfortable here for a second, we should be ready to listen to lengthy sermons. Because John Stott said, sermonettes will breed Christianettes. If you go to a church, and this is where, you know, this is where I'm thinking, if you go into a church and you hear a sermon that lasts maybe five or six minutes, five, seven minutes, like, you need to get up and go. Like, you need to, you know, submit yourself and, and allow yourself to, to be immersed within the Word of God. You know, the, the Word of God should be, have a preeminent place in the worship of the people of God. Because again, and the word of God increased and multiplied. You know, in Ephesians 6, we know that the word of God is the sword of the spirit. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, the apostle Paul says this to Christians, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The word of Christ dwelling in us richly. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul says that when you receive the word of God, speaking to the church in Thessalonica, when you receive the word of God, which you have heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Here's what's happening, is when you immerse yourself within the word of God, it begins to work in you through the power of the Holy Spirit working in you to conform you into the image of Christ. Growing in your holiness, growing in your affections, putting off sin, putting on the, the holiness of God. This is what we see happening when we immerse ourselves within the word of God. As a matter of fact, that was one of the things that um, when I was you know, reading um, that list of duties you know, for um, you know, the Schmitz, you know, the importance of those duties is, you know, one of those just as, you know, a young person, you know, as we think about little Sydney growing up, you know, a young person must be conscious of the authority of scripture over his or her personal life. I'm reading from a, a little brochure that a friend of mine back in Norfolk wrote, and he goes, we must submit ourselves um, that the word of God, and he quotes Psalm 119, verse 160, where it says, the entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. The word of God is timeless. It endures forever. It is meant to make us holy and we must submit ourselves to it or in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse five, that we are to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. The problem is, and here's what he says. He says, the now in contrast to that, how does the world make decisions? The world at large. An unbeliever or a foolish believer will use one of a combination of these principles in decision-making and setting priorities. One primary principle used in worldly thinking is emotionalism. The person guided by emotionalism believes and does according to how they feel, not based on truth, 
not based on scripture, but based on feelings. If I want to act this way, I will do it, as long as it doesn't seem to harm anyone else. If I feel that this is true, I will believe it, even if it is not true. My emotions, my feelings, my desires dictate how I think and act. If I want to spend my money foolishly because I feel depressed, I will do it. If I want to speak unkindly to a person simply because I feel tired and I feel crabby, then I will do it. If I feel angry at my husband, then I will not submit to him. Uh, If my heart is all a flutter about this beautiful girl, then I won't marry her. Oh, have pity on the man or woman whose primary guide in life is their changeable and unstable emotions. They are a slave to their emotions. Anybody? I read that and I just get convicted. I read that because there is a propensity within me to do what I want to do, how I want to do it, when I want to do it, and anyone that gets in the way of me is an obstacle that needs to be overcome. Aren't you glad you hired me? Yeah. Here's the other thing that I see. Here's the thing that that, that really, really is, is difficult here is in verses, you know, we see the, the happiness, we see the holiness, but we also see that there's, there's almost a, there, there's a, a revealing of our brokenness in the midst of this psalm. And let me, let me show you what I see. You know, in verse five, it says, oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Now that, that ver- first word, oh, it's sort of this, the plea of the heart, Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Because you know, as well as I do, that we are often not steadfast. That it's almost as if we are trying to live the Christian life and we are on a muddy surface and we can't get traction and we just feel like we're slipping again and again and again. And the psalmist in 119 says, Oh, Lord, Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. And why does he say that? Because he darn well knows that he doesn't keep his statutes. He knows that he fails. And then he says in verse six, that I shall not be put to shame having my eyes fixed on your commandments. But the problem is he does feel a lot of shame in his life. He feels a lot of guilt and shame in his life because he's not following the commandments of God. And then he, and in verse eight, you know, after we get through the, the idea of I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I mean, that's true. I, I won't even dwell on that because we're going to sing here in a little bit as we take communion. I will praise you when I understand your forgiveness. But look at verse eight. It says, I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. There's a fear that is going on in the midst of the psalmist's mind where he says, Lord, because I know that I often backslide, slip up and frustrated, all of these things, I know that I just get overwhelmed. Lord, please do not forsake me. Please do not utterly forsake me because I know that your statutes, your commands, your righteous rules, your precepts, your ways, your testimonies, your law, all of those things, Father, I fail to do them. I know that that's the goal, but I just never get it. Like every morning I wake up and think, I'm gonna run a marathon today. I've never completed that goal. I might run a little bit, but, but the goal seems so high. And so here's, here's one of the things. I just want to sh- share this with you. One of the w- reasons why we don't read the word of God is because we know that we are sinners. And there's a part of me, and we know that when we open the word of God, that more of our sin will be revealed, and we just don't feel like we want to deal with this at the time. 
Let me illustrate for a second, okay? There have been times when, you know, Katie, my wife, my lovely wife, will just ask me things to do that are just completely and utterly unreasonable. Such as, honey, can you please bring down the dirty dishes that are in the other room so that I can clean them? That just seems unreasonable to me, right? Or something like this. Do you think you can watch your children? I'm like, I don't know. Like, I'm kind of busy, you know? Like, I, you know, I mean, she just, a totally unreasonable request, right? And there are times that as, as a young husband, you know, and even as an old husband, you know, that, that when your wife asks for help and you're like, I don't really want to do it. Like, I, I, I just kind of, and so what do you do? You pretend like you don't hear, you know? And like, yeah, some of you know it. Some of you are doing that, right? You know, you, I, I didn't really hear. I'll, I'll pretend like I didn't ever hear that, right? Like, that, that didn't really happen. Or you go, you did hear it, and then you give what I would call the holy sigh of dissatisfaction, which just reveals your sin. How many of you get up to go do what, you know, I'm talking to husbands here, you know, how many of you get up to help your wife, and as you do it, you give a sigh, like, oh. You know what that's called? That's the sigh. That's a sinful sigh. That's the sigh of a sinner, okay? It's like that my time, my yearnings are more important than everything else that's going on, and I don't want to do it. You know what's really bad? Is that when you're a pastor, and you know you're in the midst of being a selfish sinner, and you have to write a sermon. Nothing worse. Because you know as you open the word of God, it will begin to reveal to you how wicked and selfish your heart really is. And so sometimes I don't want to open my Bible because I just want to embrace the selfishness of me, 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 me. And yet what I find is when I open the word of God, it softens my hard heart. When I open the word of God, And I read passages about the testimony of Jesus in John chapter six, who said, all that come to me, I will never cast out. And I think, but even me, Lord, even the husband who didn't want to parent his children today, even me, Lord, who didn't want to help at all. And he says, even you, you're forgiven. And I, and I come to the word of God and the word of God reminds me that I am forgiven, that I am loved and that I am called to something greater. And what it does, it it begins to break down the hardness of my heart so that I can actually follow him. But I'm convinced that some people do not want to open up the word of God because it might actually convict you of your sinfulness. And the reason I say this is because that's who I am. (laughs) That's the struggle we have. Again, as we come to the word of God, you know, the the thing that I love is when I think about, you know, John chapter 10, where Jesus, it's the good shepherd passage where it says, you know, I hold you, but not only do I hold you, but my father holds you as well. The word of God is good news to our souls. When um, When we celebrate communion, which is what we're about to do, we're reminded of that. Because through signs and seals of the covenant of grace, this is what God does for us. 
He gives us pictures. He gives us symbols so that we understand what is right. He gives us this bread, and he says, this is Jesus' body broken for you. And he gives us this cup. And as he poured the wine, as he distributed it, he said, this cup represents my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And when we drink of it, we know that we are forgiven. And we would know that we are completely forgiven and loved. We are known as the sinners that we are, and we are loved by our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's, that's why I love the table of the Lord. Because as we come forward, we're to be reminded, I am forgiven. And within the word of God, we are told how to live and how to serve and how to love. Brothers and sisters, if you're not picking up your Bible and, and reading it, I would encourage you to, to maybe start in Psalm 119 this summer and just start journaling part of it. Just, just start journaling it. Spend a couple minutes thinking about the word of God and the testimonies of God and the way of God and his commandments and his rules and his precepts and how they affect your life and how you I, I, I dare you to find one command of God that will lead you into sin. All the commands of God are meant to lead you to himself and also to lead you in joy. As you come forward um, in just a few minutes, I want you to be reminded of this. As you come forward, come forward in joy, knowing that you are forgiven and love God and love his word. You know, in, in 1 Corinthians, we read the words of institution for communion. Where the Apostle Paul says this, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And as the people of God, as we come and we celebrate communion, we celebrate communion until the day when we will celebrate the great wedding feast of the Lamb. This is but an appetizer, child of God, for what your Father's table will be like in heaven. And as you come forward, all those who trust and believe in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, come forward and partake. If you don't believe and trust in Jesus, then I would ask that you would trust and believe this day that you would say, I want to be a part of this family of God that will love me and care for me and lead me. But as you come, child of God, know that you're forgiven and loved.